from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO. This is What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous shows. On this week's episode... We were starting to see some of the effects of health literacy coming out of the pandemic. And we thought to ourselves, wow, we need to do a better job of of co-mingling this with other organizations in the community. We hear from Literacy Buffalo Niagara Executive Director Tara Schaefer, an Interim Executive Director at Erie Niagara Area Health Education Center, Brittany Trinello. Next, we continue with... All birds, when they're growing up, they require nice, soft protein packets of food, which most of our birds rely on caterpillars for. A tour with environmental educator Marcus Rostin. And we end the show with... Many people know the museum, not through what's on its walls here on its Elmwood Avenue campus, but through what we do in the community through the Public Art Initiative. Another tour of Buffalo AKG Art Museum with director Yanni Seren. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening. We start off with a conversation about health literacy with Literacy Buffalo Niagara Executive Director Tara Schaefer and Interim Executive Director at Erie Niagara Area Health Education Center, Brittany Trinello. We are on the topic of literacy. We're on the topic of uh, health literacy, um, but on the, uh, just on the general literacy side, um, according to the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy, 36 million adults lack basic literary skills in the United States. In Erie County, that's 18% of the adult population. Uh, Tara, as as the executive director of Literacy Buffalo Niagara, how do you feel when you you read that statistic? I feel very overwhelmed. And it makes me really happy about the work that we do. It reinforces the work that we do at Literacy Buffalo Niagara, but it's such a huge challenge. I mean, this is a major issue going on in our country, and it is a little overwhelming. So sometimes we have to take a step back at Literacy Buffalo Niagara, know that we can't solve all of the problems all at once, but the work that we do is one-on-one with our students. And so we're really changing lives one student at a time. Brittany, how how does literacy or a lack thereof play into healthcare? Yeah, so health literacy is how well a person can understand and interpret health information and then make decisions based on that. And literacy plays a role in a variety of aspects throughout the healthcare process. So whether you're reading discharge papers or even a medication label, it's about how well are you able to interpret what was written there. And on top of that, too, how well was it explained to you in the first place? So if you have context clues, you might be able to figure out what's written. But if you don't or, you know, you have a really low literacy level, then you might not be able to take your medications properly, engage in self-care related behaviors, manage chronic diseases. There's a lot of different ways that literacy impacts the way that you take care of yourself. How do the two of you come together? Because this is... You know, I'm I'm doing my research and I'm like, how does this how is this working out? How did this come together? So I'll take us back a year. We yes. were approached by Erie County Department of Health regarding Health Literacy Month. And we've had a great longstanding relationship with Erie County. And since we are uh, one of the premier literacy organizations in the community, they asked us to approach literacy from a different angle, which was awesome. And we had never really considered that before. So last year was our our first year working together and collaborating. Uh, We did a few events together. But this year, we wanted to take it to the next level. And we really wanted to add on organizations that are doing amazing 
amazing work in the community such as AHEC and their focus which I love is health literacy and that health equity piece. And, you know, we don't really bring that to the table at Literacy Buffalo Niagara, so to speak. So bringing on these other partners, it's just been incredible. And getting to know Brittany and the work that they're doing at AHEC, it's been inspiring and very educational. So let's go, let's let's stay from a year ago. For you, learning about health literacy Take me through that process for you. Yeah, so our focus has always been foundational literacy, whether that's reading or speaking. And I will tell you, to be perfectly honest, what we started to see coming out of the pandemic was a lot of our students being completely challenged with the environment we were living in when there was a health crisis going on. And when you really had to sort of navigate your health Um, importance through um, digital mechanisms. So whether that was trying to get tested for COVID or sign up to get your vaccination, we were starting to see some of the effects of health literacy coming out of the pandemic. And we thought to ourselves, wow, we need to do a better job of of co-mingling this with other organizations in the community. And it's been a great learning process for myself, for our organization. We were very grateful to recently receive a grant from the Highmark Blue Fund that is going to help us expand this health literacy work that we are doing. And for us, it's helped us to receive further referrals from other organizations on individuals that need help with their general literacy. So the learning process for me has been incredible, and it's opened up some expanded programming for our organization that I never thought we would see to fruition. What kind of expansion are we are we talking about? Yeah, so one example is we're going to be working with the Oshai Children's Outpatient Clinics to establish literacy corners in their waiting rooms. And what we will be doing is setting up a really comfortable area in the waiting rooms for families to entertain themselves before they have to go in and, and see the doctor. And we're going to be having books in those areas where the families can take those books home. And we're going to have information, of course, on AHAC and all the great work that they're doing. We're going to have information from Erie County Department of Health, and we're also going to have information on the literacy services that we offer at Literacy Buffalo Niagara, because we know that 147,000 people in Erie and Niagara counties struggle with low literacy. I love the idea of having like a a, a section for kids to read, because I... When I was growing up, there was nothing I loved more than to walk into a doctor's office or a dentist's office and just see like a stack of Sports Illustrateds or something mm-hmm. right there. It's like, you know, I can buy my time. I can keep my mind off of whatever I'm going in there for, tooth cleaning, whatever. Um, you know, I, I think that's super important. You brought up, Tara, yes. a, an interesting aspect. Just the, like the digital effect, because yes. you know, for me, I'm so used to. And we were talking about, hey, do you have any hardcover books in your house? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> all and, and just that that being able to navigate these digital spaces is is incredibly important. It absolutely is. And it has become another area of program expansion for our organization. So last fall, we launched a program called DigiSkills. And that program, uh, what we do is we go out into the community and we have open hours. Uh, Currently, right now, we're Wednesdays 1 to 3 at the Central Library, where individuals that are having a hard time navigating something digitally can come to us and we can help out. We also have a program that we can enroll our 
folks in that are interested in more help. It's called North Star, and that is a program out of Literacy Minnesota. It is fabulous. There's an initial assessment that you take that helps you understand where you're lacking in, in digital skills. Um, but digital health is so important. Mm-hmm. It includes telehealth, online booking of appointments, online portals and health records, uh, providing results of pathology and diagnostic tests online, using your mobile phone app to manage chronic conditions, tracking of blood sugar levels. There's so much there. And if you don't have the access or the knowledge on how to do that, your health is going to suffer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The Department of Health has its five things to know about health literacy. Um, we're going to go through them or can we go through them as we move along? Um, I mean, what do you, uh, Brittany, what's one of those things you think of when we talk about um, five things to know about health literacy? Um, One of the things that I think about the most is um, being able to ask questions of your provider, Um, really making sure that you're leaving the doctor's office with an understanding of what you need to do. So um, I can't recall the five things off the yeah, top yeah. of my head, but <laughs> uh, one of the things that I always talk about in health literacy trainings for community members is uh, ask me three, which is three main questions for your good health. And it, they're very simple and there's resources online. You can download them for free. You can print them out. We've given them out to provider offices in the past, but the three questions are, what's my main problem? What do I need to do? And why is it important that I do it? And, you know, in the past two, so I've been with AHAC for almost seven years now. And when I started, uh, you know, that was when I learned about health literacy. And I had to go out and train providers and community members on it. While at the same time, like I was struggling with my own health issues. And when I learned about that trick, it really changed things for me and how I was able to communicate with my providers because they were telling me all of these complicated things using... um, you know, really complicated medical jargon. And, you know, that's tough for any person to understand, especially when you're stressed out or going through something. And, you know, most people struggle with health literacy at some point in time, but especially when, you know, you're going through something on your own. And, you know, just being able to ask those questions and having the doctors explain things to you in plain language, in layman's terms, is really one of the most foundational things for for health literacy, in my opinion. And Brittany, the type of programming you do at Erie Niagara Area Health Education Center, or AHAC, AHAC, yes. AHAC <laughs> um, is is very uh, specific and important for health equity. Just tell us a little bit more about that, and then the well, not the partnership with Erie County. Just tell us more about the the programs you've got going on. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a couple programs that are focused on health equity, um, and health literacy is embedded into each of those programs. So the first one I'd like to talk about is actually our birth equity project, which arose because of the dramatic maternal health disparities experienced by black and brown uh, women, not just in our community, but across the United States. So our birth equity project, we started in the summer of 2022. So we're in our second program year. And it's funded by the Health Foundation of Western and Central New York. And it aims to educate and empower women during their birthing experiences by connecting them to doulas. Um, We also train community doulas and support women and infants throughout the prenatal and postpartum periods. So we have 60 moms in our program from the community. They're all connected with the doula. 
who teaches them about pregnancy, teaches them how to advocate for themselves, what to expect throughout pregnancy, labor, and delivery, and then also providing support in the postpartum period. So the moms are in our program for up to a year postpartum. And as I said, they're connected with the doula, but we also offer a lot of educational programs for them. So I think it was literally last week I did a health literacy training for our moms, um, and we were talking about how they can advocate for themselves. But we also work with the doulas. Um, One of the strategies for improving health literacy that a provider can do is called the teach-back method, and that is an evidence-informed intervention where the provider is asking the patient to essentially explain back to them what they just heard from their provider. So that allows the provider to check for any misunderstandings and re-explain things. But doulas can do that too. Even though they're non-medical providers, they are still coaching, they're still educating, and they can use the teach-back method to ensure that their moms understand what the plan is. So our birth equity project has had some really great numbers coming out of it so far. Um, We're just a year into the program, but you know, 80% of them had no complications during pregnancy and childbirth. 80% of them ended up breastfeeding, which is really huge. And then uh, 80% had a vaginal delivery versus a cesarean, which is also really great for health outcomes and health equity. Uh, cesarean rates are really high um, in both in, in within uh, maternal health locally. So in addition to the birth equity project, we have a We have a program that's specifically focused on teens and teen health literacy, and that's called PATCH, uh, Providers and Teens Communicating for Health. And I actually ran that program for the past three years prior to the role I'm in now. And we taught teens how to essentially teach other teens how to Mm -hmm. take care of themselves, how to advocate for themselves in the doctor's office, teaching them about what their health care rights are, how they can be respected, and, you know, what are their responsibilities when it comes to taking care of their health? And many teens just don't have that knowledge. They don't know that they have health care rights. They don't know they have rights to confidentiality. Uh, they don't know that they can, you know, have privacy, that their doctors don't have to tell their parents everything. Uh, because if they think that, they're, you know, whatever they tell their provider is going to get back to their parents, they might not share things right, that are really right. important for their health. So uh, we have a group of teen educators who are teaching teens, but they're also teaching providers how to work effectively with teens and how to respect their rights and how to make sure that they're building good relationships with teens. Uh, so so this, these are teenagers? Yes. Teach- yeah. How I does know. that how, how, how do you, <laughs> how do you make that work? Well, first of all, teens are incredible. If you've never had the pleasure of working with teens, they are wonderful. I've only been one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, – Patch is actually a curriculum that we have. Um, the program initially uh, it originated in Wisconsin, and we were Buffalo was the first site outside of Wisconsin to take on Patch. But now they're all over the United States. Um, they even just had a recent training in Saipan, so it's a great program. But there's a curriculum. The teens learn a lot about teen health issues, but they mm-hmm. also have a lot of say in what they learn. So teens know. They know themselves best. They know Every, they have a voice as well. Yes. They have a voice in how the program is run. So they have a voice in what they're learning. Uh, they do have a script, which helps with the actual workshops. But we teach them how to facilitate those workshops. Like the site coordinator for Patch, we're just there as a support. We introduce the teens and we let them go. And they share their own stories. They're really passionate about it. Honestly, it's incredible to see them go from maybe not knowing so much about health to really being advocates and resources for their peers. 
And the provider workshops are amazing too. All the providers love hearing from the teens and really getting that teen perspective. That was Literacy Buffalo Niagara Executive Director Tara Schaefer and Interim Executive Director at Erie Niagara Area Health Education Center, Brittany Trinello. Next, we take a tour with environmental educator Marcus Rostin around Rhinestein Woods Nature Preserve. And in general, birding in Western New York, pretty, pretty popular, pretty, a lot of avid bird watchers and a very popular segment, which you've been on before, Bird Note. Yes. That airs on our station is, is hugely popular. It's good to see that, that there's, a, there's still an avid community of, of bird enthusiasts, bird watchers, birders. What's the proper term there? I like to say the proper term is whatever you want it to be. Uh, I call myself a birder. Um, you know, people say they go bird watching just as valid. Um, I like to I like to keep people identifying however they want to. Um, but birder, bird watcher, both totally valid terms. And yeah, here in Western New York, we do have um, a pretty robust birding community. Uh, thankfully, I think it's because we are in such a globally significant important bird area that we have a lot of people engaged in uh, the birds that come through. We are blessed with the natural resources of Western New York being right here on the shore of the Great Lakes and in between two Great Lakes of the Niagara River, just uh, great opportunities for bird eggs. Uh, and it's great that the community has taken a love for the birds just uh, as strongly. We got some other sounds coming in to join the chorus. American goldfinch flying over, cicadas calling. Ah, so there are cicadas out here as well. Yes. I, uh, prior to this, I was at, in Washington, the Washington DC DMV area. And boy, did I get introduced to the cicadas out there. Uh, I was down there for the, the massive brood. The, the big, 17 year the hatch. 17 year one. And uh, I, I, was, I was thoroughly underwhelmed. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> there, they were, there were a lot of parts you could see them, but uh, I had seen, I had been told horror stories that they were, they'd be on cars and, and, and everywhere you walk, you were crunching into one, unfortunately, because it was this massive It did take the news media by storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, uh, I mean, I, you still saw them and, and you saw their, 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 I guess what the, the exoskeleton that they molted out of. The exuvia that they'll leave, uh, yeah, attached to trees as they hatch out from their, uh, early juvenile stage where they exist underneath the soil. They have their fun down below, right? And then they come out come like up. zombies. They, they go to sleep, they hibernate for years. And then come up the treetops and just scream at the top <laughs> of their lungs. That's their, is that their mating season? Or is that their, that's their arrival into the world and just, hey, here we are? The whole point, loud. get up there, get to the top of the tree, start screaming out. You're looking for mates. The whole point is just to mate, lay your eggs so you can have more babies underground. and. That is the whole point of being an adult uh, cicada. So does Western New York have that wave of, of 17 years as well, that brood? There are, though, so there are a bunch of different species of mm -hmm. cicada. There are annual cicadas that do that process every year. Um, but we also have the same 17 year uh, cicada hatch that happened, uh, yeah, with everybody else. Not nearly as uh, loud as the, the, as the central, the Mara, yeah. <laughs> central eastern seaboard area. Yeah, they're, I mean, I've seen videos of the like extreme cases where it's just like I said a whole car covered in, in them but um, now I did read though that that there's concerns about climate change and that affecting their 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 brood cycles 
Is that correct? Not just the brood cycles of them, but yeah, many, many insects, uh, birds, uh, climate change is going to wreak havoc on our, what we call the phenological calendar. Mm. Uh, phenology is what I like to refer to as nature's calendar. The way that uh, these natural processes have tuned in to the regular uh, changing of the seasons and uh, changing of the temperatures uh, over the, you know, thousands, millions of years that these animals have evolved, they've had a pretty steady uh, calendar. But with climate change, we see uh, the length of seasonings changing, uh, and we see uh, precipitation changing, all these different patterns, winds, uh, all of that. They're accused to basically start stages of their lives. Exactly. And they're now starting to get out of sync because they're speeding up at rates that, you know, these species are not uh, equipped to adapt to. So, yeah, so I, cicadas and birds uh, and most insects, the climate change is going to change all those cycles. And also urban development also plays a role there, I think, for the cicadas as well, that because they're underground and people yes. are excavating, they're creating new new developments and all of a sudden they, they dig into a whole cicada. Habitat uh, loss, habitat. yes. Yep, yep. Love it. Well, I guess we're going to say bye to our green frog friend. It's not easy being a green frog. Beautiful native wildflowers growing right beneath the boardwalk. These are called cardinal flower, uh, which is a beautiful deep red native plant that loves growing in wetlands. Now, we mentioned the lilies as an invasive species, but I've also looked up that we have issues with, there's some other ones. There's the emerald ash borer, which is a, which that's a, a like an emerald beetle looking Yeah. Thing. But then, as far as vegetation, you got... Uh, for, uh, for plants, there's pale swallow wart, uh, which is, yeah, an invasive plant. One of our biggest uh, invasive plants is actually right behind us. Is so it the dewberry or...? This is called Phragmites, or common reed. Uh, it's a long... Long, very stem. tall grass. I am sure that everybody has seen this plant growing in any kind of roadside ditch along these highways, underneath electrical lines. Really it, long blades of... of a very tall it. reed can grow up to 10 feet long in the when it starts flowering it has what almost looks like grains uh, or like wheat that grows at the top of it mm. with uh, those big brown flowers kind of like the bottom of a corn stalk yes so that is our uh one of our most uh <laughs> i was gonna say dangerous invasive <laughs> species but one that we are uh working to manage the most uh invasive plants what they are um, an invasive species is a species that isn't native to the area, mm -hmm. so it's usually brought from somewhere else, uh, and it has a negative effect where it grows. So it either affects the negatively affects the environment, negatively affects uh, economics, or it negatively affects human health. Could have toxins for the animals themselves also. Yes, um, and what Phragmites does is it grows so dense in monocultures that it completely crowds out wetland areas, not allowing any other plants like cardinal flower to grow. And the difference between Phragmites and cardinal flower is because cardinal flower has grown, uh, has evolved here, it has a lot of native wildlife that depend on it. Phragmites, nothing depends on it. It's, it's not useful for the species assemblage that we have here. So when it creates that monoculture, it devalues that habitat for the native species that would traditionally be there. So. And what's being done to combat these invasive species? We here at Rheinstein Woods, we have a stewardship program. We specifically have a Phragmite strike team. They come out every other Tuesday evening and they are working. Strike team. Yeah. I love it. They are working to uh, remove uh, stands of Phragmites to prevent our beautiful ponds from being crowded out and just becoming a giant stand of Phragmites. So 
In terms of environmental challenges, invasive species is probably up there with uh, one of the most difficult things that we have to try and manage. Thank goodness we have Phragmites Team 6. Yes. <laughs> Which you can join if anyone is interested. We have, you know, a very strong volunteer program here at Rheinstein Woods. And with large challenges like invasive species management, Phragmites, you know, it's all hands on deck to try and take it over. You can see here Phragmites uh, growing off the side of our boardwalk. And this other plant that is growing in between it, which also looks like a grass. Mm -hmm. But right now that grass has a puff of flowers at the top. This is called a rush. That is a great native plant that grows in the same wetland areas that you can see Phragmites is starting to take uh, yeah, control over. Oh, wow. and, but Rush actually feeds uh, native wildlife, where Phragmites does not. And so. that's everything from white-tailed deer to... To birds, uh, insects that uh, create relationships, symbiotic relationships with these plants over millennia. Uh, so all of that gets lost when that plant is replaced with a plant that evolved with a whole other set of species on a different continent. So how, do we know how these species get here? It's case? a variety of reasons. The lilies were brought by? by they were a beautiful uh, horticultural plant that people like growing in their ponds and they just escape into the natural environment. I believe Phragmites was also brought as a, you know, a guarded plant and then it just escapes into natural areas. Uh, we're also standing beneath some dead ash trees. So you mentioned the emerald ash borer. Mm. Uh, so these trees, we're looking at uh, small trees, but they're uh, standing and unfortunately dead. Barren. Uh, and the emerald ash borer was actually brought over in a shipping crate. Uh, a shipping crate that came into the New York City area happened to have a borer that was inside of that wood. Native of what area? Uh, it's native to uh, Eurasia. I forget specifically, but I believe uh, it's from the Asian continent. And that one shipping container that happened to have emerald ash borer on it now has devastated 15% of the standing trees in New York State. Wow. So as you drive into Rheinstein Woods along Como Park Boulevard, you'll see just these, a sea of dead standing trees uh, that are thanks to that emerald ash borer coming through. So the ash borer, beautiful looking beetle. Yeah, nice I emerald green. Insect of sorts, and, and so it, it kills off the tree. How does it do that? What the emerald ash borer does is it gets underneath the outside, that hard bark layer, and it gets inside to the inner bark layer, the cambium layer. And that borer just bores through in a back and forth. We have a lot of native borers that do the same thing, but they tend to make their pass up and down that doesn't kill a tree. What the emerald ash borer does is it goes around the tree so much so that it severs all of those uh, those tubes that carry water and nutrients throughout the tree. It's arteries, basically. It's arteries, basically. Yeah, it, it essentially just girdles that tree and it prevents it from being able to move nutrients. So that is what ends up killing it. Yes. <laughs> that is a uh, warbling vireo. Oh. Oh. Wow, you've got quite the equipment there, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. quite the lens. Just gotta learn how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful photo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice spot. We're here with WBFO, NPR's member station. Uh, have you frequented uh, Rheinstein Woods a lot, or is this? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I come here quite often. And uh, what, what brings you to Rheinstein? What's the, what's the uh, main draw? It's peaceful, it's quiet most of the time. And uh, taking photos, a lot of nice wildlife, deer, uh, amazing amount of birds, spring migration, that type of thing. So, yeah. 
I'm sorry for springing this this, this impromptu <laughs> conversation okay. on you. What's your name, if I may? Uh, Debbie Rich. Well, thank you, Debbie. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Good luck uh, bird watching. Thank you. Oh, look at this critter. We got a little fuzzy caterpillar. Oh, yeah. This looks like a tussock moth caterpillar. So do the, much like the birds, do the the insect population have kind of a similar, you said it earlier, I'm trying to remember. Phenology? Phenology. Phenological Thank calendar, phenological if you will. Yeah. <laughs> they do. They, ha they have their own. Uh, you think about how monarchs uh, are probably one of the most uh, common butterfly that comes to mind. They have to time their migration. If they get here before uh, there are milkweed plants for them to land on and feed on, then they have no food. Uh, so they, they have, insects have migrations, they have timings. Uh, if an insect comes out too early and their food source hasn't yet emerged because their food source might be timed to light schedules, which doesn't change mm -hmm. as much through climate change, whereas the insect might take its cues from uh, heat uh, and that changing, which is changing with climate mm -hmm. change. So uh, insects, they uh, have those same calendars that uh, are in danger of falling or are falling out of sync uh, as well. And also they could just end up being early prey for if they're out, if they're if they coincide with another animals or birds uh, phrenological calendar, then they might be yeah. easy prey. And then you start seeing uh, if those calendars get out of sync, you start seeing chain reactions. Birds, they time having their young uh, with big pulses of insects. All birds, when they're growing up, they require nice, soft protein packets of food, which most of our birds rely on caterpillars for feeding their young. If, though, if those birds get to a location too early, have their young, and don't have the uh, exploding caterpillar insect population to feed them, then those young are going to go hungry. So you start seeing how if the, if the caterpillar's calendar gets off, it starts throwing off the bird's calendar. Everything that interacts with the bird starts getting thrown off. So it's these chain reactions that uh, is really uh, at risk of being changed with climate change. Kind of thing. The circle of life is very, very particular. And if I assume like it's a chain reaction, as you said, one thing goes off gets off kilter the, the rest of it kind of domino effects when you get out into a forest it seems like it's just a whole bunch of random things in an area that uh, are you know existing on their own but nothing out here is happening by chance nothing is random it is all a result of relationships uh, between organisms relationships between organisms and abiotic factors like your wind your rain uh, so all of that is very much reliant on each other. When you start pulling at the string of one organism, you start feeling the web of life uh, responding to it. So yes, uh, all of these things are very intimately tied to each other and uh, are tied to a, an environment, an uh, ecosystem that evolved and changed very slowly, typically over hundreds of thousands of years and we're now accelerating that change uh, on a scale that is going to start throwing off calendars this little guy's moving we were standing yeah. here and he's like about five feet away from us already in a matter of two minutes i forgot to mention earlier that we are joined by uh, my colleague and digital media specialist dallas taylor dallas say hi to the folks of what's next 
This is wonderful, my first time being on the program. Uh, it's wonderful to be out here in Rheinstein Woods and enjoying the nature. And like you were talking about before, Marcus, how if you pull one part of nature, it affects the whole thing. Like nothing is random. I was just saying that's kind of a symbolism for just our community itself here in Western New York. If you tug at one part and you notice how everything else starts to come together and almost defend it in a way. People forget how interconnected everything is. And that's the thing I always keep harping on is everything affects something else, whether it's here, whether it's down south, whether it's hundreds of thousands of miles away uh, in another country, in another continent. It's all it's all one e ecological system. We're on one, one greenhouse. And, and that's why I love birds is birds are that connector. I can stay right here at Rheinstein Woods and I could see a bird that is flying all the way to South America and it is interacting in an entirely different ecosystem down there, but I can see it right here at Rheinstein Woods. At the same time, I could be connected to the Arctic Circle during the winter when birds come down here. That's why I love those birds as they are great at illuminating and showing that interconnectedness of the planet. We get so, as humans, fixed on our one location because we're a little bit uh, less uh, are transitory in our homes, where, whereas uh, a home of a gray catbird is in Buffalo one part of the year and a different continent the other part. And it, uh, all along the way, stopping and connecting both people, ecosystems, and wildlife throughout the entire range. What would you say is the bird that migrates the furthest to here or from here? Put me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> Test you today, Marcus. So uh, some of our farthest flyers, uh, blue-winged teal, they will nest up here and they'll fly all the way to South America. Uh, we have some uh, shorebirds like uh, sandpipers, the plovers. That As a Floridian, I know about the sandpipers. Yeah, the sand, some, some of our shorebirds, they will uh, overwinter really far south. Uh, that's good. I'm not. Few, few. <laughs> I wasn't gonna. I, 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 you got your points. You got points. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't look at my. I didn't get my migration uh, refresher this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, we had. Uh, I had the belted kingfisher. I know that the Orioles make their way up here. Yes. Not so. Not just solely solely playing the Blue Jays, but. Uh, in, in migratory seasons, they, they come up here. Love nesting right here in these tall cottonwood and walnut trees. They make their, the Orioles will make their beautiful architectural wonder nests that are literally woven pieces, fibers of plants that they painstakingly pull apart, weave into these beautiful sacks, and uh, they'll nest right here at Rheinstein Woods at the top of these trees. You mentioned the warblers, very much part of this area. And another example, one that I should have uh, immediately thought of, because they are uh, probably the best example of our neotropical uh, migratory birds, and that those warblers, they will, some pass through here, go up north. We have some, like yellow warbler, common yellowthroat, that will nest here. Um, but they are our connection to the tropics, to South America. That is where they are ha hanging out, and they come up to Buffalo uh, to lay their eggs and to breed up here. Let's talk about some of the flora we're seeing here. This giant tree uh, that we have right here in front of us, this is our eastern cottonwood tree. They are really great at growing huge really quickly. 
They are one of our uh, early successional species. So they get to an area, they sprout up really quick, put out those limbs, uh, and you can see them from far away because their leaves, they're shaped like heart shapes, like deltoids. If you put them upside down, look at that heart. The cool thing about cottonwood leaves is they, the stem that leads to their leaves is actually flat, uh, which I can't roll between my fingers. And what that allows them to do is wave back and forth. So you can see when the wind blows through cottonwood trees, their leaves dance on their branches, waving back and forth on that flat petiole. So very common tree that we have in Western New York, growing usually in our wetter areas along uh, in riparian zones, which is the scientific word that we use to describe uh, wet areas along uh, rivers, lakes, ponds, creeks. Now this, this bad boy is what, about 75 feet or give or take? Probably, yeah. Wide, well, width of maybe, I don't know, I'd say four feet in diameter or so. It's a pretty, pretty big tree. What, yeah. what, what took me is the, the, the grooves on the outside on the outer bark. Yes, that the heavily furrowed bark, really deep ridges, yeah. another great characteristic. And the cool thing, well, cool, the cottonwood tree, it is big and grows very quickly. So despite this tree being really large, you probably think this tree has to be hundreds of years old. Yeah. But it's probably, yeah, only a couple of decades old. But since they grow so fast, they're also known to not be the strongest in structure. So they also fall down and break apart pretty quickly. So what's a big what's a popular misconception with the wildlife of Western New York? I mean, one of the things that I like to talk about uh, for wildlife in Western New York is a lot of people think that they have to go far distances mm -hmm. uh, and go like nature is something that is somewhere else. You go to nature. Uh, and here in Western New York, we're lucky that we, I mean, everywhere you are, you have nature is always around you. Um, but in Western New York, we're lucky with how many natural areas that we have. That was a tour around Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserve with Marcus Roston. And we end the show with another tour of the new Buffalo AKG Art Museum with director Yanni Seren. Talk a little bit about that, about the growth of the, of the institution and also perhaps it's how it's integrated, how it reflects this community. Um, uh, we talked a little bit before we started the tape about on May 14th of uh, 2022 yep. was a the tops the tops massacre. Again, you're, you're here and you're overseeing this construction and this rehabilitation um, and expansion, but at the same time, this community went through something that arguably it never had before. How does an institution like this, how does it respond? How does it integrate with the issues that have come out of, of that tragedy? Unfortunately, the TOPS uh, May 14th tragedy is only one of so many such tragedies in the United States where gun violence is, is prolific. Um, this one, of course, hit us who live here, who call Buffalo and Western New York home. It hit us hard. But long before May 14th, 22, the Buffalo AKG Art Museum had committed itself to building really two buildings. One of them, this physical building that we are in or set of buildings that we are in right now. And the other one, uh, a building of ideas. And our building of ideas 
was made of the bricks and mortar of what we call IDEA, that's uh, inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. And, and that's something that we really launched into before we laid the first brick down uh, in terms of this expansion. Because if a museum is not of its community and for its community, it's a totally futile exercise to build anything new. Uh, it's just, you know, you can spend the dollars, but if you don't do it of the people and for the people, it's not really worth it. So what does community engagement and idea work then mean for us? Well, it really began, in our case, uh, with us saying that we want to think of the museum beyond the museum's walls. We, are, we want to expand our artistic program into the community, and we did that through the Public Art Initiative, which began with a staff of zero back in 2013, and has become wildly popular, and is really regarded as one of the transformative agencies of the museum, and many people know the museum not through what's on its walls here on its Elmwood Avenue campus, but through what we do in the community through the Public Art Initiative. Uh, we've also created an entirely new department, uh, which is called the Community Engagement Department. It has its own director. Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Callie Johnson is now deputy mayor with the city of Buffalo, <laughs> right, right. so the position is open and we are searching for Dr. Johnson's successor, but you know, I'm sure we'll find a, a qualified candidate. We've actually had a lot of applications for that leadership team position. So think of public art, think of a department whose entire job is all about community engagement, a, uh, a department that has a seat at the leadership team level of the museum that is accountable to a board committee that looks over community engagement. All those are facets of our house of idea, our house of inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. So I think that the museum has fundamentally taken a look at its previously inward-looking self and turned that inward-looking self into an outward-looking self, meaning a museum that's open to the community, that wants to embrace the community, and also wants to be a reflection of the community, and that reflection means that our staff is also today more diverse than it has ever been in the past. I mentioned Callie Johnson, right. uh, you know, we have our leadership team is about nine people and, and um, we have more diversity on that leadership team than we have had ever in the museum's 160 year history. Is that something that, there's a saying that art always kind of reflects what is really going on in society before society really re realizes that. Was that kind of what you saw here, or was that something that came out of you and your staff that we see this is a, a part of this community that's lacking, that there is a, a, a part of the, a large segment of Buffalo that is, uh, not, is, is forgotten in some ways? Certainly, I think we, we felt it and saw it. Um, the, tw the 20th century was so siloed in so many ways. I mean, you could say segregated or siloed, but we, we created artificial silos. And I think that in the 21st century, you asked about some of these trends. I think that we are seeing a trend to break silos. 
doesn't mean that you get one style emerging out of it, but you get a plethora of styles and combinations and synergies and convergences. We are standing here in Gallery 17 next to Jackson Pollock's mm. painting Convergence, and you know it's one of those paintings that we could use as a metaphor for what's happening today, meaning it is uh, a converging of different tendencies, people, backgrounds, religions, aspirations, hopes, wishes. We don't live in our 1950s silos anymore where there were certain modalities of conduct, behavior, expression, uh, and so forth. Uh, but rather there is this kind of constant motion vortex, if you wish, of people, of thoughts, of ideas, of things. Um, that are coming together and sometimes parting ways and sometimes it's a bit messy and difficult uh, but at the same time it, it is an expression of the human spirit of today. Um, I look at young people who come to the museum and I think if there's one constant it's the, the awesome naive wisdom of young eyes mm. who can look at the world in a new and fresh way each day. I just hope that they, those eyes are not too much negatively impacted by all the digital screens that they, they are exposed <laughs> right. to. And I mean that in purely optical ways. I mean, uh, I think the jury is out on whether, whether you know, the things that come to us through various different screens are good or bad. But I, I do think that you shouldn't look at the sun without sunglasses and you shouldn't look at too many screens for too many hours <laughs> because it'll just <laughs> kill your eyes. <laughs> and uh, that's not a good thing. Right. So we've come to an interesting gallery. This is Gallery 16. It's, it's just a, such a marvelous space because it has our amazing uh, yellow and orange Rothko, our Helen Frankenthal, our Bob Feely, our Sam Francis, and of course the Larry Poon's Orange Crush. Uh, along with Smith's tank totem sculpture. It's such a wonderful, uplifting space. I mean, people just walk in this room and they, they say, oh, I, I, you know, I've said there's sort of a set moment of arrival here. But interestingly, from this room, you can walk into a bridge that's named the John J. Albright Bridge. Mm. And this bridge allows us oh. to connect with a new part of the campus. So we're walking in this bridge that has a run length of about a 200 or so feet. Um, on our right, we see Hoyt Lake. Mm. And to our left, we see the new Jeffrey Gunlock building. And this bridge itself it has a very practical function. It's here to connect the old part of the campus with the new part. It's also a path through which we can move artworks between the buildings easily. But it's also a sculpture in its own right and uh, a sort of manifestation of Shohei Shigematsu's architectural design brilliance. We needed a connector. It would have been very difficult to build this connector underground and it would have disrupted the foundations of the Wilmers building. So instead of doing that, he created a bridge that loops around five Olmsted oak trees, and you can just imagine how difficult it was to build this bridge because the closest oak tree is only about two feet away from the side of these oh. glass panels. Right. But it's a, it's a very inspiring and beautiful space that uh, allows us to traverse uh, through the campus.
uh, to our right as we are approaching the Gunlock building, we see our new loading dock. We are so happy about that loading dock because now we can finally bring artworks safely into the building. Previously, as you recall, we would have to park uh, 18-wheeler at the bottom of the Delaware stairs on the east side of the Wilmers building, then hire a crane, and then crane in artworks into the w Wilmers building through snowstorms or rainstorms or thunderstorms. And now we have a loading dock and all the art can come safely and traverse the entire museum campus by coming in, uh, backing into the, into the Gunlock building. As we're walking across this bridge and having this chance to look out, I want to just ask you another community issue, the future of the Skijakler, the 198. You've done this marvelous job, we're looking out at the Great Lawn right now, as a matter of fact, which is yes. uh, obviously was very popular with that concert recently. But uh, to that, obviously, the way this was redesigned took very much into account the Olmsted vision. What about for the 198? It's a community issue. Where, where, does, uh, where do you think about it? I guess I'll just ask you, what do you think rather than the institution? <laughs> so, um, well, let's first take a look at the Skachakwada and at Delaware Park. First of all, one of the interesting things about the new Gunlock building is that it gives us a bird's eye view of Olmsted's Delaware Park as well as of the Skachakwada that we've never had before. Right. So we can, it's difficult to conceptualize a space or think about whether it should be or not be there if you are looking at it from the vantage point of a pedestrian, or from the sort of uh, ground level view, because you can't see it holistically. And to interpret these things in plan, are, that's always a difficult exercise unless you're trained as a landscape architect or an architect for that matter. But now that we are here and we clearly see the Skachakwada and we clearly see Delaware Park's beauty we're now on the second floor, by the way, but we could go a floor up and even get a higher vantage point on both. I think it does raise the question of what is and what should be the future uh, of this urban highway. Um, I, I think that my job as a museum director is not to cast judgment uh, or to say what should or should not be done. What I'll say is this, um, I think that um, human life is precious and I think health is vital to human life. I bicycle to work or walk to work about 90% of the time and it's very difficult to do that if your community is um, separated or segregated by highways that are meant for cars going 50 plus miles per hour. I, I think that the notion of having a highway like that with a 30 mile per hour speed limit is sort of dissonant with its intended purpose and I think that that generates frustration uh, in people using it. Uh, I understand the reasons why this has been made to be so. There was a terrible accident. Uh, a young child lost his life or her life. Um, I understand these things, but I think that urban planning and urban design should always begin with both the needs of the moment and of the time and always with the utmost respect for human life. And the question that should be asked is, does 
this highway express the utmost respect for human life. Thank you for that answer. I appreciate it. Probably didn't expect that one, but I couldn't. I mean, just looking at how you have really reclaimed this property, not just the space, and brought and got rid of the parking lot, which of course everyone right. wanted, and just make it look like more of a park. Yes. I think um, it kind of stands out next to what is now the Skajakwa. Right. Um, and, and here we are on this talking of a park. We are on this sculpture terrace, and in many ways, this sculpture terrace replicates that moment that we experienced under common sky, where we are in an indoor space, but in an indoor space that very much connects with the outdoor space. So the sculpture terrace on the second floor of the Gunlock building really wraps around the building like a belt, 360 degrees, and as you walk around the sculpture terrace, you are constantly orienting yourself in relation to the city beyond the museum. And that notion of connecting with the city beyond the museum, perhaps you are hearing it, it's a recurring leitmotif in what we've been doing. We've been connecting with the city beyond through our public art initiative. We are connecting with the city beyond through the architecture of the entire campus now. So it's all about creating a sense of connectivity and porousness between the museum and beyond the museum to the point that we hope that when people are driving on Elmwood Avenue and looking at Robert Irving's light piece, Niagara, they are connecting with it, hopefully not being distracted <laughs> from driving, but uh, are connecting with it and are feeling that I'm part of the museum. I might not be in there right now physically, like right there, uh, where Yanne is being interviewed by right. someone, but I'm still almost there. Right. I'm, I'm connecting with it, and that notion of connectivity and belonging, uh, I think, is uh, really important, meaningful, and uh, impactful. And of course, one thing that you often feel in art museums is uh, a sense of confusion. But when you can connect with the landscape that's around you, you feel a sense of understanding because you're not feeling lost. You kind of orient yourself in relation to the familiar and then you walk into a gallery. We've just stepped into one on the second floor of the Gunlock building and you can now let your eyes be challenged and your mind be challenged by works of contemporary art that don't reveal their secrets to you immediately or in the instant, but you sort of have to work at it. But because as a navigator of the museum space, you don't feel lost. You allow yourself to be challenged in an interesting way by works by Anish Kapoor, for example, or Paul Fardeschild, or Theaster Gate, who's created this magnificent tapestry out of fire hose. And you're looking at it thinking, well, you know, I could do that. And what's the meaning of this whole thing? And it's just fire hose. And then you walk a little closer, closer to the work, and you see that sort of printed letters on this fire hose that clearly refer to its gauge and its ability to deliver a certain number of gallons of water per minute and whatnot. But then you see this 1962 printed on it, and then in your mind's eye, you return back to the 1960s, and you start thinking of the moment in American history at the time of the Civil Rights Movement and what were fire hoses used for at that time? Well, they were used to break up riots and by the police and the fire departments as they were trying to quell 
the rising voices of Americans who wanted liberty and equality for all. So wow. here you have an African-American artist using fire hose and it seems non-consequential or even insignificant or banal until you realize that there was a time when the power of that water gushing out from that fire hose was literally wiping people off the street as if to whitewash the street. Mm. Uh, we're running a low on time here, so I would like to just, if you could, just your, your thought to Western New York about what they have here now at the Buffalo AKG Art Museum. Well, I, I of course, um, I'm a vagabond, you know, I, uh, I moved to Buffalo, it's the 14th city where I've lived, I've lived in seven countries, so I'm, I'm a vagabond or a nomad, whichever way you want to designate me. I, I do hope that Western New Yorkers and Buffalonians uh, will enjoy this museum because we have built it for you. Uh, we haven't built it for ourselves and we hope that this can be uh, a space of healing, a space of learning, uh, a space of happiness, a space of wonder, uh, and a place of pride. Uh, the museum, the Buffalo AKG Art Museum, is one of the world's most renowned and respected art museums. I'm not sure if everybody in Western New York knows that. We cheer the bills, I cheer them too, but the Buffalo AKG Art Museum is in a league that is always in the finals. It's always with a gold medal around its neck. Uh, so I think Buffalonians, whether you are museum goers or not, uh, we all need those things, hope, love, beauty, connectivity, and solace. And you can find them here. Take advantage of your national treasure that's located on Elmwood Avenue. We thank you for joining us. This has been Producers Picks. We would like to thank our guests, Tara Schaefer, Brittany Trinello, Marcus Rostin, and Yanni Seren. If you missed anything and you'd like to hear it again, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcast or the Amplify BTPM app, and each episode is also online on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening. This is the WBFO History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of October 30th through November 5th. I'm your host, Josh Deckert. On October 31st, 1968, Buffalo's own WKBW broadcast a remake of the War of the Worlds radio drama for Halloween. On November 1st, 1941, the Bell Aircraft Corporation, located in Buffalo, began development on new aviation technology, the helicopter. On November 3, 1997, the Buffalo-Niagara International Airport opened. The airport now manages over 100 flights daily. And on November 5, 1993, Nirvana performed at the University of Buffalo. The band played at the Alumni Arena. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. 
You can learn more at buffalohistory.org. For WBFO, I'm Josh Deckerton.